You are listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast, a podcast about ideas and events from the margins of terrorism, genocide, and the philosophy of violence. This podcast is recorded at the CJSW 90.9 FM studios at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta, Canada, located on the traditional territories of the people of the Treaty 7 region in southern Alberta, which includes the Blackfoot Confederacy, which is comprised of the Siksika, Bikane, and Kainai First Nations as well as the Sutina First Nation and the Stony Nakota, including the Chiniki, Bearspaw, and Good Stony First Nations. The city of Calgary is also home to Métis Nation of Alberta, Region 3. Your hosts are Gavin Cameron, Josh Goldstein, and Maureen Hebert. We're all on faculty here in the Department of Political Science. And just a caution before we get started, this podcast is for mature audiences and deals with topics, commentary, and depictions of events that some listeners may find difficult or distressing. Hello, everyone. Welcome to the Oddities of Violence podcast. I'm your host, Gavin Cameron. I'm joined, as usual, by my co-hosts, Maureen Hebert. Hi, Maureen. Hi, everyone. And Josh Goldstein. Hi, Gavin. Hi, Maureen. Great to be in the studio with you again, Maureen and Josh. In this episode, we're probing the margins of terrorism. We'll be having a conversation about arson in early modern Europe and the role that public fear had in driving a state response that has parallels to modern counterterrorism. Joining us today is one of our Oddities of Violence workshop contributors, Johannes Dillinger. Johannes joins us from Oxford in the United Kingdom. Hi, Joe. Hi, Johannes. Hello, everybody. Thank you for having me. Well, thanks for being here, and it's so nice to talk to you. Johannes is Professor of Early Modern History at Oxford Brookes University and an extraordinary Professor of Modern History and Regional History at Mainz Johannes Gutenberg Universität. He studied history, Catholic theology, and education at Tübingen, Norwich, and Trier. He won the Friedrich Spree Award for Outstanding Contributions to the History of Witchcraft. His publications include English and German monographs on the political representation of the peasantry in, early, in the early modern period, on terrorism, treasure hunting, witchcraft, and on concepts of alternate history. Dillinger's main research interests include state building, constitutional history, the history of political crime, church history, and the history of folk belief, magic, and witchcraft. So, Johannes, before we get into the nitty-gritty of your argument and your case, I'd like to take a step back and get a sense of your academic origin story. How did you become interested in your broader research focus in terrorism and the theme for today? Well, I was always interested in the interrelation between governments and their so-called subjects, the common people, villages, and townspeople, and their interaction with the state, this strange, mysterious uh, being mm. that seems to take shape in the early modern period, the period I am most interested in. Many people today simply take the state for granted. The state is there and people seem to assume that it has always existed. Well, of course, it hasn't. It emerged in a slow, extremely conflict-ridden process over centuries. I'm interested in that process. Mm -hmm. And on top of that, I have always been very interested in things that don't exist. I absolutely love things that don't exist, things that are relatively free, not so much burdened 
uh, with so-called facts. Uh, I like witches, fairies, the ghosts and demons of early modern imagination. And I like imaginary criminals. The witches are, of course, in a way, imaginary criminals. All criminals, you could say, are to a certain degree imaginary because we produce our criminals to a certain degree for us. The witch is just an extreme example. And I think this is precisely where the terrorists enter the picture. We have this slow conflict-ridden process of state building. We have the state builders, everybody knows about. But we also have the state destroyers, people fighting the state, people fighting what we would call politicians, princes, decision makers in the widest sense of the word. And some of these state destroyers did exist and do exist. And others seem to me to be figments of the imagination, very much like witches mm -hmm. and uh, Jewish plague spreaders and yeah. the like. Mm -hmm. That's fascinating, Johannes. Thank you. Uh, and I can see how that, that does sort of add up to a, a sort of coherent sort of set of, of ideas that, that bring us from the, the early modern period into the present and, and how those, those speak to each other. So that's a, a, a sort of fascinating insight, even before we've got going. Yes. Thank you. No I'm, I'm glad that you see that most of my colleagues don't. Oh, <laughs> oh dear. Um, you, your, your chapter has us think about fears that arson in early modern Europe was being centrally organized by some shadowy external power. This sort of, as you've talked about, a sort of almost a figment of imagination. And the attacks are being committed supposedly by people on the margins of society. So before we get into the implications of the case, can you just provide our listeners with a brief description of the background that we're talking about today? So you're focused specifically on the Great Fire of London. Um, so can you talk us through what happens in the Great Fire of London and how it fits into a wider story about fire and fires and arson within this period? Mm -hmm. Most of the things you can see in today's London are relatively recent. 80% of medieval London were destroyed in one giant fire in 1666. Mm. Of course, this fire traumatized the city and possibly an entire nation. And the British have been very reluctant to let go of that trauma. They seem to like remembering it. When you go to London, you can see the monument, this huge column uh, near the Thames that remembers this fire of 1666 and remembers it in a very specific way originally. Uh, the inscription on the monument mentioned the parties responsible for mm. that fire, the Catholics. <laughs> now, most people today would agree that the Catholics were not to blame for the destruction of medieval London, that it was, well, such things happen, a mere accident, a mere horrible, catastrophic, unprecedented accident, but an accident. Nonetheless, mm -hmm. 
People in 1666 were in two minds. Some accepted that it merely was an accident. Others didn't. We seem to want people to be responsible for this disaster. The typical enemies of Britain came to mind, the Catholics to core, or the French, or people from the Netherlands. I'm tempted to say, take your pick. <laughs> Because who was really responsible did not really matter as long as somebody was responsible, as long as it was not just an accident. Along came an unfortunate French clockmaker with the unlikely name of Robert Hubert, who obligingly claimed to be the arsonist responsible for the fire of London. Apparently, he didn't know the first thing about the fire. He claimed that it that it had started in Westminster. That was obviously wrong. So he adjusted his confession to suit the needs of his interrogators. Of course, he was executed. Even the people at the time saw, realized that he was of unsound mind. Mm. But it didn't matter. He had confessed and he confessed to belong to a Catholic conspiracy, precisely mm. what people wanted to hear. Now, the fire of London is very well known. A number of very good books have been written about it. Uh, surprisingly few, actually none of these books I'm aware of, uh, suggest to see this fire in a bigger context. The fire of London was by no means exceptional. Well, of course, it was exceptional in scale, but this idea that the conflagration of an entire town is the result of arson, this seems to be a very widespread idea in the early modern period. We encounter it time and again in Britain, in France, in the German-speaking lands. And this idea that there are organized groups of arsonists out there who want to torch towns, villages, entire regions, organized gangs of ar arsonists that want to destroy entire countries, that seems to have been an idée fixe hmm. of a number of early modern governments. Time and again, large fires have been blamed on organized arsonists, a form of organized crime. I became very much interested in that when I thought that I could see a pattern here, a narrative that was repeated time and again, over and over again. There is this conspiracy. The head of the conspiracy is some foreign potentate, can be the Pope, can be the Turks. Mm. It is always the political or denominational adversary. Right. This potentate pays gangs of organized criminals to torch villages and towns. That is the basic idea that keeps repeating itself. We have it in a variety of regions, really starting in the 15th century. And uh, we see this type of thing till the 18th century. 
one might argue that even the Captain Swing riots uh, still had aspects of this idea, organized arson to achieve a political aim. Terrific. Thank you. And uh, certainly in the context of mid-17th century Britain, I mean, I can see why an anti-Catholic element would make sense if you're looking for a bogeyman, as it were. But but can well, I ask? More a, that, yeah. I was just going to ask a very basic question, though. Why do you need anyone causing fires at all? I mean, the, we're we're in a period where ha buildings are made of sort of material that burns pretty easily. We have lots of open fires. We have rudimentary firefighting. There must have been many many people who had first-hand knowledge of buildings burning down and you know their own potentially their own built house burning down so why do we need why do they need this this sort of explanation that there are gangs of arsonists roaming the countryside setting fire to to villages and towns of course it is not necessary to blame organized gangs of arsonists for big fires in most cases we don't do that. In a number of cases, that was very attractive. Coincidence is boring, and you can't really do anything against blind fate. However, you can fight arsonists, mm. and it becomes even easier to fight arsonists if you imagine the arsonist not as this lone wolf, this one deranged individual, but if you imagine the arsonist as a part of an organized gang, that is a good explanation, that is an attractive explanation that gives you the option to do something again. For the emerging state, this explanation was very attractive. The emerging state could justify its existence once again, you feel, if it claimed that a big devastating fire was really the result of arson, and if it claimed that the subjects needed the government needed the administration to fight the arsonists. That was a lot more attractive than just, you know, make people put a bucket of water into their houses. The states did <laughs> that too. I mean, firefighting is one of the ways uh, the, the, the state uses to, to establish itself in the last village. Mm. But with this additional bonus of crime fighting, the entire story became more attractive for everybody concerned. Yes, I can see that. Thank you. I, I wonder if you can just talk, though, a little more about the logic of such attacks, because um, these are uh, arson attacks that are supposedly orchestrated by the state, but for the most part, they're not being, they're not targeting militarily significant um, targets that they're targeting entire cities um, and we're not really in an era I mean setting aside perhaps the 30 years war we're not really in an era of total war so demoralizing 
the population is not, I wouldn't have thought, is a sort of strategic objective of of state. So, so what's the logic at play here? What's the explanation for why arson is being selected for this purpose? Well, to let the cat out of the bag, I don't think that uh, any state really used a form of warfare. I would think that that was a political delusion of the early modern period. Mm. However, it was an entirely believable uh, delusion because people were uh, familiar with wars of extermination. We could mm-hmm. find that in ancient history, in the wars of Rome. And after the experience of the wars against the Hussites, this idea of total extermination of the enemy, uh, well, became again. We have very some. We have something very similar in the fight against the Anabaptists of Münster, mm. a war of extermination. The enemy has to disappear from the face of the earth. And even if that was not realistic, it was certainly a real fear of the early modern period. The total termination, the total destruction of the enemy. And of course, it was again, in a way, attractive. If you presented, if you as a government, as a prince, as a ruler, managed to convince your subjects that your enemy was after destroy their village and their town, these people would be more willing to side with you. And again, we are not supposed to take that for granted that early modern villagers and townspeople accept the state as we are supposed to do today. Why would we? For governments, it was to a certain degree attractive to present their adversaries, enemies, rival rulers, not just as their opponents and adversaries, but as inherently evil. This Mm. idea of the demonic outsider, be it the Turk or the Pope, was attractive for early modern governments. Thank you. Yes. So how did states respond to this fear, this fear of organized arson? So what countermeasures did they adopt and how did their populations respond to these attempts to mitigate the threat? The responses to this perceived threat of organized arson looked surprisingly modern. What we get is organization, communication, surveillance. Mm -hmm. The state crew in fighting organized political criminals. At the moment, my favorite example is Hans Kohlhase. You might have heard of uh, a rebel in the early 16th century who uh, fought the state of Saxony for 
idiotic uh, personal uh, reasons. Mm. He organized <laughs> a gang of followers, criminals that supported him in some way. And very quickly, rumors began to fly. Kohlhaas was here, there, and everywhere. Uh, he robbed the Duke Silver and so on and so forth and started attacks on everybody. And he tried to burn down Wittenberg. Wittenberg itself, Wittenberg with Martin Luther in it. Uh, oh. <laughs> of course, the state had to react, and it reacted by creating what I would call the first German police force. Mm -hmm. The patrol crew, being in 1580, uh, 1538, uh, it had its own budget, it had uh, a number of them that enjoyed crazy privileges, we were allowed to ride through the fields of the peasants, and the state would pay, to, would pay for all the damage they oh. caused, that kind of thing. And uh, village officials were supposed to cooperate with these people and not to ask too many questions, just to cooperate. Uh, we have type of reaction all over. The state organizes itself. It begins to create new institutions. It begins to invest money into what we would call security and surveillance. Mm -hmm. States are frightfully talkative beings. We are not just nosy, we are also talkative. We communicate with each other. Governments exchange information, and we are especially keen to exchange information about political criminals. These organized groups of arsonists did, of course, move across boundaries uh, through uh, different territories all the time. So in order to fight them, you had to cooperate with your neighbors. You had to exchange information. In order to do so, you need people who can read and write. You need a bureaucracy. How did the so-called subjects respond to all that? They were, well, they responded surprisingly well, because hmm. these organized arsonists attacked them. Of course, it was easy for them to cite that the state finally there was something they could relate to. People responded very well. Valence, because they point of surveillance, they understood the state needed information. And what is more, the so-called subjects became interested in this type of themselves. There were lots of broadsheets about these organized gangs of arsonists. People to read that. That was political news that was finally about them, that mm. was relevant for them. Hmm. Terrific. Thank you. And I think uh, it, it's certainly possible to see parallels between what you're describing there, both in terms of um, ordinary people's responses, but also the sort of countermeasures that the state is taking between sort of the response to early modern arson or, or fears of arson and, and contemporary accounts of how the state deals with, with terrorism. So I, I can absolutely see uh, that, that parallel. Um, perhaps, Maureen, if you want to sort of take us 
on? Sure, absolutely. So I basically have sort of two threads of questioning to take up the discussion so far, which has been like absolutely fascinating. Uh, first, I wondered if you could say a bit more about who was said to be constitutive of these gangs of arsonists. Who who were these people? Obviously, we know Robert Hubert kind of turns himself in and, and so on. You've told us that story. But who made up these these gangs of, of arsonists, supposedly? And and how was their identity understood? You know, in, in I'm a genocide studies scholar, so for in my field, we spent a lot of time thinking about how the perpetrators conceptualize their victims as a, a partial way of explaining why they launch a, a program of extermination in the first place. And this usually takes up a few different things. You know, the the victim group is said to be foreign or alien and therefore outside the political community. More crucially, they're seen as existential threats that, you know, threaten the continued survival of the political community and therefore need to be eliminated in some way. And they're also seen as subhuman, not so much as a way to justify why their elimination has to happen, but it makes it psychologically easier. So could you say a little bit more about who supposedly made up these gangs of arsonists and and how were they conceptualized? I, I'm, I, I'm thinking that they're probably people who are very marginal to the political community. So how how were they seen and why were they seen to fit into these this kind of giant conspiracy? The early modern period is the period of the estates, the clergy, the nobility, and all the rest, the third estate, what mattered for the third estate was property, the farm for the peasant or farm, the workshop, the house in the town for the townspeople. They could work with concepts of they understood buying and selling land and mm. were very keen to do so if uh, the legal structure of the principality they live allowed them to do that. What we did not quite well we, we, we understood it, but what we what we could not quite relate to people who did not own anything. Mm or people who did not mm. own anything that mattered, people who had homes. Homeless people, vagrants, tramps, whatever you want to call them, were the ultimate outsiders because they were really outside, outside of your village, outside of your town. And the worst thing about them, they didn't even stay in one place. They weren't like mm -hmm. the medical mm -hmm. monks in, in the monasteries. They moved around in poverty. Mm -hmm. They depended on arms. Some of them were certainly rather demanded arms. These people, itinerant beggars, itinerant street beggars, were supposed to be the backbone of the arsonist conspiracy. Mm. Foreign potentates allegedly sent emissaries into your country. These emissaries established contact with vagrant beggars and paid them for torching towns and villages. Mm. Why did the beggars agree to that strange deal? 
Well, because they needed the money, yes, mm. obviously. But the pay they received was often as being ridiculously small. They torched towns and villages, killing dozens and hundreds of innocents because they were evil. Not just because they were outsiders, not just because they had nothing to lose if a village they didn't live in that village, we live in any village. We did so because they were said to be mindlessly evil. Mm. They mm. harmed others' harm's sake. That sounds outlandish, that sounds strange and unbelievable. However, this is also the period of rampant anti-Semitic People simply assume that members of other groups mindlessly evil, that they simply want to kill, maim, and destroy because that's what we do. Mm -hmm. That's exactly what I was kind of thinking, these other two groups that you just mentioned, that perhaps you can say a bit more about them. So we, we have in this instance this really interesting, I thought, response. As you say, the response to these fires is a kind of policing response um, and I wondered if you could say a bit more about why you think, as a part of its estate building project, but why you think the response is mostly a policing one and not a kind of harsher response that we might imagine, you know, wholesale massacre of those alleged to be part of these arson gangs or, or say, their deportation. And I wonder if you, maybe you could also contrast the treatment of those accused of being in these arson gangs with the contemporary treatment in other circumstances of Jews and, and of witches, uh, another, you know, as you said, a, a specialty of your, your research. Mm -hmm. Well, the treatment uh, homeless people received was certainly hard enough. Uh, it was not a wholesale massacre, but it came pretty close. Mm. I mean, people were simply arrested from the street with no reason uh, when they were homeless and were interrogated, often using torture. Mm. The threshold for using torture was surprisingly low uh, in many parts of the continent. In Germany, where criminal justice was largely in the hands of a judges who hadn't studied uh, law, knew very little about the rule of law. There were regular campaigns against itinerant beggars, but I think what mattered most was the idea that the threat organized arson was always there wherefore the needed to be always on the alert they had to control this hard to control clientele itinerant mm. beggars all the time that mm. uh, really um, encouraged them to invest uh, a lot of money into uh, surveillance measures mm. kept up without any concrete reason as a matter of course. We have lots of laws uh, explaining uh, that the, the state needs to control uh, homeless persons because they are arsonists. 
that is the reason the laws uh, themselves uh, give. So we have surveillance, we have uh, harassment, we arrests with any real cause. These people were exiled, so driven into the next principality mm. or often arrested just like that. If there had been a big fire somewhere in this territory, in the vicinity, uh, homeless people were arrested and interrogated uh, if they were responsible uh, for the disaster and the use of torture made sure that in hmm. most cases uh, they come uh, quickly. I don't know and nobody knows how many people have been arrested as arsonists, even though they were completely innocent, but I would guess that the numbers are well in the thousands. Wow. I hmm. think we are aware of the tip of an iceberg here. Mm. It might not be on the level as the witch hunts, but we are certainly talking about thousands of weeks. So would wow. you say that the kind of response to uh, that you've just described here is it's, it's sort of drawing on the way in which, say, the witch hunts kind of unfolded, the rationale behind them? Was there kind of a, a connection between them in some way? Do you see? Uh, there was a very strange uh, connection. Uh, many people were accused of witchcraft and arson. Oh, okay. That sounds like an, it, that sounds like an idiotic combination given the uh, continental European custom of burning witches. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, we have that uh, time and again. This might be the reason why uh, the itinerant arsonists are always male. Mm, okay. A negative female figure. Uh, we had uh, another uh, cliche, if you like, that of the witch. Mm -hmm. Of course, there were lots of uh, uh, homeless women uh, out, but the members of the arsonist conspiracy were always male. So people apparently fought uh, in terms of the mercenary system for a bit of covert warfare. You would probably uh, recruit men very much like you would uh, require mercenaries for an open war, whereas uh, the negative figure is the witch in a way you didn't need the arsonist fantasy for that. Well, that's fascinating. Maybe I'll ask just one quick more question. Now, you've talked a lot about something I was going to ask you more questions about. We've done a lot of it already. And that is this really interesting role that the this whole uh, story plays in state formation. Um, I was wondering how, as a kind of, uh, as a scholar, how your work fits into other stories or other accounts of early modern state formation that draw, you know, a really strong link between the formation or foundation of the state and its evolution and violence. So Charles Tilley's very well-known idea that wars make states and state make, states make war, or the genocide studies scholar Helen Fine suggests, you know, that the state uh, is, is a powerful actor that uses violence to engage in boundary maintenance, as she calls it, between itself and other states and also within. Uh, so could you say a little bit about how you fit into that uh, intellectual 
um, conversation. Well, of course, the state needs, in a way, violence, criminal violence, in order to claim the monopoly uh, of violence. Uh, however, I do not think that this is just about violence. Mm. The state as a legal and administrative unit needs an inside and an outside. And that is mm. precisely what the early modern states begin to develop, mm -hmm. a geographical inside, outside, an administrative and legal inside, outside. Where precisely is the church? in this state if it's is it in the inside is it on the outside where precisely are the villagers do they belong to the state or are they just another type of outsider the state needs an inside and an outside and on the inside it needs the arcanum, the secrecy, the state is supposed to have secrets. The subjects are not supposed to have any secrets. The subjects are not even entitled to privacy. Mm -hmm. They must endure state surveillance, but the subjects are not supposed to control the state. What the state does is secret by definition. And then, of course, the state needs a system of exchange. You know, mm -hmm. you're supposed to pay taxes and tariffs for certain rights and privileges. And that is the state's system of exchange. If you violate that system of exchange, you are corrupt. And I think corruption is very much like terrorism, a part of the state. It is, well, corruption and terrorism are the twin shadows of the state. The state can't help producing corruption and terrorism because the state defines it inside and it's outside. And the outsiders that interfere with the state are corrupt or terrorists or some other form of uh, political criminal. I would see that as a big system of state building that necessarily needs the state destroyer, produces the state destroyer to a certain degree and has to deal with this state destroyer in some way. Mm. This has been a really fascinating, really fascinating discussion. As a, as a political philosopher, I study and teach the early modern period, although it's not my, my area of expertise. And, and as, you, as you, you brought out, this enormous period of change, not just in the organization of society, but in the way within political philosophy that new ideas about the state and what the state rests on and what makes it legitimate are, are emerging. And I was really interested, and I think my, my questions are going to try and, and get you to situate this really strange figure of the, of the vagabond, this, like, as you said, this, like, very poor, this rootless, this nomadic stranger who nonetheless has this enormous political or is given this enormous uh, political power, almost these magical powers to overturn the, the 
community through through these acts of violence through this through this arson. So I kind of want to get you to 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 situate this weird figure within this early modern uh, imagination. And, and in particular, you've you've given us this really nice account of how the state sees this this isolated, poor, nomadic figure. And and I'm really interested to to see how the town folk, how the ordinary folk understand this this situation. And and one of the one of the interesting things here, there's a kind of background to this to this question, is the way in which within political philosophy in this early modern period, the individual emerges as the the central as the ground or the foundation for thinking about the political community. You know, if we think about Machiavelli's prince, it's this one titanic individual able to master fate, fortuna, to overturn the whole cosmic order through their own strength and insight until we get to, like, uh, in the mid-1600s, Hobbes and Leviathan, in which it's every single individual contracting with each other set up this titanic power of the of the state. So this great emergence of the individual and the decline of providence or fortuna as what's guiding politics. And I think you've, you've given a really nice account of, of, of how that happens. So we know that, that within the state and political philosophy, but how about like the ordinary townsfolk? Has this... Is, does the individual begin also in their own understanding to to loom large or is still ideas of providence or fate a kind of an order outside of their control is, does does that still uh dominate well i do not really see a contradiction here between uh, providence and the individual. Ah, very uh, interesting. Of, of course, we still live in a Christian society, and Protestantism did have a problem with the individual and free will. Mm-hmm. So, in a way, um, we have a variety of loose ends mm. uh, where we could attach the figure of the vagabond. Let's begin with the individual. The vagabond is no individual. Mm-mm-mm. The vagabond is always a member of a group. Okay. As an individual, uh, he does not really matter. He is dangerous because he belongs to an organization. He is not dangerous as an individual. What is mm. dangerous as an individual is his superior, ah, okay. the foreign potentate mm. that is indeed a Machiavellian mastermind, uh, that evil uh, prince mm-hmm. that has decided uh that he is above uh, the community and its norms. I do not misunderstand Machiavelli. <laughs> I am just uh, <laughs> trying to, to, to sketch uh, here a simplified uh, picture of some of his ideas. Sure. What I, however, find uh, interesting is indeed that evil loses its face in the late Middle Ages. Mm. Uh, when we look at evil individuals in the arts, they aren't evil. Mm. If we look at them closely at uh, Jago in uh, Shakespeare, for example, we begin to understand his reasons. He just isn't evil. Right. What is evil is only 
amass mm. what is evil has no individuality a couple of years ago i wrote an article about it that nobody read and nobody reacted to in which i explained <laughs> in which i explained i take the opportunity to come back to that that evil is really the plague Mm, okay. And that uh, the plague has no faith either, that is a mass of people that is dangerous. The close cousins of our arsonists are the plague spreaders. Mm. That is another political delusion of that time. We have the Jews poisoning the wells, but we also have Italians smearing poison on church doors. So mm. everybody who touches them uh, gets the plague and has to die in an awful way. That is just another political conspiracy theory of that time where we have masses of uncontrolled, uncontrollable people that do not matter as individuals mm -hmm. and are therefore, and that's the joke, really, really dangerous. Right. Because as individuals, we are difficult to catch. And if you catch one, what have you got? You have the last foot soldier of a huge invisible army. Go deal with that. Who do you need to interfere with that? The state. You referred to Thomas Hobbes. Well, what is the state? People come together to form this unit that we need in order to survive. And you really believe that if you believe that that beggar that comes to your door now is part of a vast conspiracy. Now you believe that you as an individual need that state and that that state actually needs you as an individual because you need to denounce this beggar to the bailiff right now right oh that's 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 really fascinating so so here it's there is a a really uh interesting use of of identity or or belonging that's that's going on so we have still the the presence of of estates of these recognized groups of a kind of uh, belonging that's just that's just there. So how is it that vagabonds? How is it that these that these groups of homeless were understood to to come to be? So was it just that that there are these individuals that are innately rootless and they form together these groups, or is it that somehow that their own behavior excludes them from their from their natural homes in the village or in an estate or and that they then come to kind of clump and coordinate to together so so how what was the understanding of how these vagabond groups came to be groups we come to be because they are where people did not really try to explain their genesis mm, okay. they tried to dealt with what they experienced. Mm -hmm. Large groups and in some territories people have said we talk about 10% of the total population oh, wow. who are poor and homeless. Uh, please remember that the early modern military is largely based on a mercenary force and these mercenaries could be described as armed 
vagabonds mm -hmm. who work for this prince today and for another prince uh, tomorrow. So we have an unreliable system here uh, anyway. In addition to that, there was, sorry, another political fantasy, the fantasy of the monarchy d'Algo, the idea that the homeless are somehow organized. Ah. And this idea seems to be frightfully convincing because people still believe that. There are still rumors about organizations of beggars. We have that really from the Liber Vagatorum in uh, 1510 uh, to uh, John Wick Part 2. That mm. is an important <laughs> plot point that the beggars of New York City yes, all right. belong to a criminal conspiracy. <laughs> Here we go again. That's straight out of the 16th oh. century. People who are obviously, I would say, obviously unable or unwilling to organize themselves or to form organized groups are supposed to do just that. Ah, uh, wow. So, so another sort of idea that that seems to get uh, trans transformed. You you had mentioned the arrests, the torture, the executions, the rounding up of of the homeless, the uh, vagabonds that that occur. And and as I was thinking about that, I was thinking about the idea of the the place of the stranger and of charity, of hospitality, that is also part of every human culture, has an important place to play within Christianity it, itself. And, and is there, and, and of course, the one to whom charity is most owed is the, the one who has the least, the mm -hmm. stranger in our in our midst, the stranger in a in a strange land is that to whom we most owe hospitality, too. And and is there a transformation in ideas of of charity of hospitality that is that is occurring here? Um, is there a sense that vagabonds are are somehow beyond even the human community? Uh, so so what's what is going on? Uh, what is going on there? Well, yes, of course, we could quote Rousseau and talk about the shared sense of humanity, mm -hmm. that type of thing. Yep. However, I despise Rousseau and never believed a word he wrote. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> I don't really see that in the sources. That is a nice pipe dream. Mm. Uh, of course, Christianity uh, turned home the message that we have to care for the poor, but only to a certain degree, and mostly to the poor of your own town and village, mm. where people who are entitled to charity, okay. and the Christian community and the Christian state absolutely respects that. The guild will always defend the member that has fallen on hard times, of course. But the vagabond does not belong to the parish. Ah, okay. It is questionable if the vagabond belongs to the church anyway. Mm. The village has no obligation to protect the vagabond, and the village is quite keen for the vagabond to leave mm. quickly because mm. you will give alms to him or her once, but not again and again and again. Mm. 
here, take this and leave. That is uh, the attitude. Of course, the most important support network uh, in early modern society, and I dare say in modern society too, is the family. The family of the vagabond is a difficult beast. Mm. These people sometimes claim to be married because they married themselves. And the state, as well as the church, are kind of reluctant to accept that. Uh, so vagabonds might form a strange anti-family that alienates them even further from uh, the village community. I don't. I wouldn't say that they fall through the cracks. Mm-hmm. They are really outsiders. You might help once. Or you might employ once when you need the manpower in the harvest, but then they should leave again. They are not supposed to become a burden. You give them something and you feel good. If you are Catholic, if you are Protestant, you don't even give them something. Um, But uh, this this entire... uh, idea of of giving arms of course changes in the early modern period I was a little bit aggressive here uh, but uh, protestantism i think is partly uh, to blame for this uh, relative mm. decay um, of arms giving ah okay in in this this sort of standing outside of humanity even humanity understood in this local this local way the the estate the guild the the town and in historically in the later modern period that groups that have stood outside like uh black folks enslaved in the in, in the united states that one of the great moments of transformation of inclusion within humanity is to to hear these these narratives of slaves and their experience, that their experience is fundamentally a, a human one, that they, that they love their children and their uh, spouses, that they feel the staying of the whip and the burning of the sun in the, in the fields, that their experience is a human experience. And so the great narratives of enslaved folks in the in the Americas are kind of transformative. Frederick Douglass's narrative, perhaps maybe most most famous in the mid eighteen hundreds. Is there historiographically is there any first person accounts or narratives? I don't know what it would be. Diaries and so on of of vagabonds talking about their uh, experience that that is is present or and or gained any kind of of traction as a as a as literature in the in the early middle ages in the early modern period oh yeah yeah sorry sorry uh, yes yes yeah. the early modern period yeah. yes yes huh? um, that type of narrative is um, of course not part of the sources i work with mm-hmm. uh, I work with trial records, I work with broadsheets, I work with uh, government correspondences. We have lots of narratives uh, from vagabonds. 
but all of them obtained under torture or ah, the friend of torture. Okay. So these people were very effectively silenced mm. in the early modern period. That is one of the problems we face when we talk about this, I call it early modern form of terrorism, organized arson. We have never independent accounts of the culprits, mm. of the accused. Mm -hmm. We're only allowed to talk when the judge asks them. And, uh, well, the judge does not exactly dictate their answers uh, to them, but uh, uh, with torture at their disposal, they could, of course, get the answers they wanted to get. This is, however, a generic problem of all forms of political crime. We usually have just confessions obtained under torture, if we have any confessions at all. That holds true for the gunpowder plot. That right. holds true for the assassination of William the Silent, William of Orange. What we have are confessions under torture. That's great. Thank you. Johannes, one final question before we conclude. If there's one thing from your case study that you'd want us to remember, what would that be? Well, if you agree with me that organized arson in the, in the early modern period was at least as a concept, as an imagination, a form of terrorism, mm. we have to accept that terrorism is fairly old at least 500 years that it really came into being together with the state that terrorism is indeed the shadow of the state and therefore terrorism is extremely unlikely to disappear. Wow, that's a great note on which to end. Thank yes. you. Um, thank you so much, You're Johannes, welcome. for joining us. Um, it's been a great conversation and we really appreciate you being here. So thank you. Thank you very much. Great. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Johannes Dillinger will be here at the University of Calgary on June 8th and 9th, 2023, for our Oddities of Violence workshop, made possible through funding by the Social Sciences and Humanities Research Council of Canada. If you want to know more about Johannes' work on the fear of organized arson, drop by or live stream the workshop. Details will be on our Oddities of Violence website. You have been listening to the Oddities of Violence podcast. Our podcast is produced and edited by Alejandra Vives. Thank you, Alejandra. With support from the great team at CJSW. Thanks for listening, everyone. Until next time.